Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by the cast and crew, Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts, uh, FDR, or more recently, Al, when he's being less than less than properly excellent, he's referred to as Al. Just that's just a little bit of I'm just I'm just changing the rules of the game here a little bit and because I'm the first one to speak every episode or most episodes, I can do that. I am the I am I am the host. That's what I am. Okay. Um, so dictatorial about it too this morning. I mean that's 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 impressive. You know, I, I was up early, I've been writing papers, I'm 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 just I'm in a mood. Let's just be frank. Um but today today uh Today, dear listeners, we're going to continue on our discussion through the confessions. Uh, we are turning to book three. We've been having a lot of fun. I mean, I've been having fun with it. I think, I think, have you guys been having fun? With, I mean, you guys have been having fun with the book, maybe not discussing with me. <laughs> Is that how that works? I mean, I always think I've like, been enjoying it. We let's do some introspection. I'm loving the, you know, exploration of my own sinfulness through the lens of Augustine's sinfulness. Good times. That's how I think of fun. That that's okay. You, you're being facetious, but also not. That's actually Matt Anderson's like idea of fun. <laughs> that and then maybe like port, port and introspection. Matt Anderson's ideal Friday night. Um, basically. Basically. Uh, yeah, so I, I've been having a lot of fun with this. And the it just, Augustine's just so, so surprising. Uh, I mean, even if you've read it before, that it strikes you. So we, we're turning to book three today, right? And book three explores uh, his years or part of his years as a student at Carthage. Right, so the uh, the the way he opens it just really grabbed me. I came to Carthage, and all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. Um, but it's just that that's just a that's just a spicy opening to his teenage uh, or student years, his college years, and it says a cauldron of illicit loves. Um, but. But it moves forward. I mean, he, that that beginning is important because the it, it drives the discussion of of the issue of loves. And I, I don't know. I, I was curious what you guys made of this, but this this very beginning subject where he talks about his love of loves, his 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 desire for love, but even the fact that his desire for love was a disordered desire uh, that didn't allow him to love. What was the true object of his love? What should have been the satisfaction of his, of his love of love, so to speak? And I, I, um, I don't know. Just right off the bat, that little that little segment grabbed me. So I was wondering what you guys made of made of this. Uh, Al, Alistair, I find it interesting the way he connects it very closely with his his love of um, theatrical shows. That <laughs> yes. his love of love was also the love of the passions and other things that were excited, the tears and the um, the, the drama excited of the theatre. But yet the hollowness of all of that. that um, and the way in which it made him 
the sense of catharsis, but also the way that it made him relate to things that were not worthy of love at all. But at that time, the theatres are shared the joy of lovers when they wickedly found delight in each other, even though their actions in the spectacle on the stage were imaginary, when moreover they lost each other or shared their sadness by a feeling of compassion. And that sentence, you really feel that he's a contemporary of us. Um, the emphasis what, what, that we what? have upon entertainment within our society, how prominent it is, and also how much it can distort people's perception of moral reality as they get drawn into this um, highly emotionally charged spectacle. I thought that would be worthy yeah. of discussion. Yeah, okay, so this is dumb, dumb, dumb example of this. This is what's interesting, that the morally compromising nature sometimes of enjoying and identifying with characters um, in a show that typically doesn't, you know, stir stir the passions on this discussion. Uh, my wife and I watch Frasier, and Frasier is funny to us. It's, it's uh, you know, you know long-running comedy, whatever. And the thing that struck us the other day, though, is the, one of the main romances in it is between uh, Niles Crane, Frasier's brother, and Daphne, who was um, uh, Frasier's father's physical therapist. And, like, Niles has this unrequited love for her for many years that she's unaware of, partially while he's in a loveless and awful marriage. Um, but the long and the short of it is that that marriage crashes – but they they kind of have this this kind of back and forth about you know you know they they both end up in other relationships and Niles through a quirk of events gets married not knowing that she has begun to return his feelings and then in order for them to get together he leaves his wife within about three or four days of marrying her and she breaks off her engagement to a very good man uh, and then they come together and what was interesting about that is you know. We, we were watching it this this time through, and um, both my wife and I were sitting there thinking, "This is actually awful, right? This is this is awful." And and yet, and yet, because we we've been watching the show for a few seasons, and you root for you root for the protagonist, and Niles and Daphne are supposed to get together. You're rooting for for Niles to ditch his wife three days after they're married, and Daphne to ditch this ditch this good man, Donnie, that, that she's engaged to, and so that they can be together, right? So that love can triumph and conquer. And and we're just sitting there thinking, this is actually a very awful plot, and I I can't, like, it's bad for me to root for this to happen. Um, but you're watching the show, and it's and it's engaged you, and, you're, and it, it was just interesting the way we were just struck with this the other day in the show, like as, I don't know, seemingly innocuous as, you know, Frasier, which is fairly tame now by comparison. Um, but it still shapes the way you think about these things. So, um, now that I've added myself as a Frasier aficionado, um, I don't know that, 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 that's what came to my mind. <laughs> it's, it's the only thing we're going to remember about this episode, Derek, is probably that you were, you were, uh, selling Frasier to the rest of us. I, what strikes me about, I mean, the 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 critique of the theater is um, one of the most famous parts of Confessions. And what strikes me about it is uh, the emphasis on mercy 
and misery uh, that he's uh, developing through this relationship to the theater. So while he does talk about the joy of the lovers when they wickedly found delight uh, that he felt, um, his primary emphasis is on the feeling of tragedy, the feeling of mourning at uh, the bad things that happened to them and the um, the falseness of that. Uh, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that, that emphasis. Um, I mean, obviously, as a... Um, as a theater goer, there is a, a kind of identification with the characters that goes on, um, an identification that is very close to what constitutes compassion, um, misericordia, um, and uh, which is why he he talks about, uh, you know, um, is that the sole reason why agonies are an object of love? This feeling flows from the stream of friendship, but where does it go? Where does it flow to? Um, this, this, this conception that the sorrows that we feel are grounded in this, this friendship that we have um, explains the, his response to these shows as a theater goer. Um, and he wants to defend this identification, this sense of mercy. He doesn't want to jettison it. And I think he doesn't want to jettison the theater either, but he, he needs the objects of uh, this to be appropriate. And, um, and so there is a, a, a kind of moralizing of theater that I think is uh, inescapable at this point for Augustine um, in a way that is just deeply incommensurate with how we tend to think about um, TV. I mean, yeah, and we've talked about some of those themes before, um, but it does seem to be primarily on the tragic side for him. Um, when we're thinking about in this particular chapter in the shadow of events of the last few weeks with allegations and um, all these other things coming out against big figures in Hollywood and um, the entertainment media, how should we take Augustine's critique and apply it to our own society where TV and um, the entertainment media, the big screen, play such a role in shaping our passions and our our view of the world. Should Christians be a lot more critical of the theatre than we actually are? Oh, man. See, at this point, you've got multiple impulses warring in... I, I would imagine many listeners who I don't know. You've got like the around us. Oh no, a cauldron of illicit loves, <laughs> right? Yeah, and like we <laughs> that get, are I, warring. Because at this point. At this point, you've got like you're, you're now you're now two or three levels of of juking going on, right? So so you you know if you're a certain kind of evangelical of about our age or whatever, you're you you've worked hard to move past. You know your your semi cloistered Christian culture, maybe slightly fundy consu- consumption of culture when you were a kid, uh, and so you've moved past that, and you realize culture is good, cultural production is good. Uh, we can enjoy these things. We can have like a you know creation fall redemption narrative, and you know engage the culture and think good, and then and then and then you 
start to, okay, so then you go the next level deeper of, okay, but culture forms and it shapes and, and okay, there's no such thing as neutral cultures, even church culture isn't neutral, all those kinds of things. At the same time, you know, we go, we, we go, we go to, we go, you know, through Taylor and Augustine and, and then we start to realize, okay, but, but these things do form our loves, even at a level that we we can't always appreciate uh, it's hap- appreciate that it's happening. You know, like we, we can't always, you know, run it through our, our theological grid uh, and parse out the good sections of a show and, or a movie and the bad sections and which parts line up with scripture. You can theoretically, but that's not necessarily um, stopping the way that it's forming you emotionally and spiritually. Uh, in a way that transcends just your rational capacity to like line up, you know, the scenes and which verses either affirm or don't affirm it. And so now you're like post post fundy uh, and you start to realize, well, maybe, maybe some of that pullback from cultural engagement was, there was something to it, uh, you know, consuming certain sources and then, and then you just end up, with like a, a next level, a next level hipster version of your parents' old restrictions on rated R movies. And so for instance, when we look at the culture of Hollywood, (laughs) how many healthy relationships do we see? How many strong, lasting, enduring marriages without any infidelity, um, which are first marriages, um, committed throughout life with children and all these sorts of things how many examples do we see like that rather our hollywood stars are examples of of relationships gone awry on a very deep level and we hear these constant stories and we expect them we've become inured to them to some extent because they're not surprising to us um the fact that there is a casting couch for an industry where naked men and women are paraded in front of um, multitudes shouldn't be surprising to us. And we're complicit in that um, to the extent that we watch these shows. And yet we talk a lot about affirming culture and culture formation and all these sorts of things. But we seem to draw back from some of the fundamental critiques that it would seem that a recognition of these things should draw us to critiques that are I mean, far less sparing. I, I, th- I think there are lots of questions there, Alistair. I'm not sure how many of those are Augustine's questions, at least here, right? The um, institutional complicity in um, uh, unjust institutions with rampant injustice, injustice is obviously an important question, but that's not Augustine's critique of the, the stage. His critique of the stage isn't that, these actors are themselves leading lives that are not commendable. Um, his critique of the stage is that they're presenting lives that are themselves uh, not commendable, and he's being uh, shaped and determined by those stories in a particular way. Um, yes, although my point, my point is that there is a connection between these things, that the shape of their lives and the injustice of the institutions 
are connected to the character of what takes place on the screen. Yeah, and there very well may be, but um, I mean, when I think about what Augustine is driving at, um, yep. his he yeah. My point more generally is that do we have a strong Christian critique of the entertainment media within our day and age, or are we just? I mean, when I generally hear people talking about Augustine and the other church fathers in their various critiques of um, the stage, people tend to be dismissive. They tend to see it as a, an issue of that time. Whereas many of the issues that they highlight are issues that are very clearly, patently present within our lives, where we have a stage in every... Our front rooms are built around a stage, as it were. Yeah. I'll say this. I think that I think there is a critique there. I, mean, I think I think people do do it. I think sometimes it sounds a little bit more fundy than people like uh, aligning themselves with. Like, and that's part of that was part of my point of my ramble. I think some of that's there. I think some of us though uh, are, are wary of you know making the fundamentalist retreat mistake, and we've probably we've probably overcorrected too much into the well. Let's just consume it all. Uh, um, mode and uh, you know, part. I'm not saying it's all rebellion against your parents or whatever, but there's just with, without necessarily heeding um, this other uh, formative dimension in the way that we we always should or could uh, with a little bit more discernment, a little bit more wisdom. Um, kind of pulling back and and realizing, okay, well, yes, freedom in Christ. I can there. I, I can probably watch more than I could as a kid, you know. Um, and maybe those standards that my parents had, or you know, my private Christian school had, or whatever it was, it was a little different. But at the same time, um, I'm not really sure that I need to be up on every recent show that. Is is dominating the conversations right now? I'm, I'm actually fairly sure that some of them. Um, it would probably be best if I if I wasn't being formed by spending hours and hours of time identifying with these characters and being shaped and having their loves shape me. Um, well, but the, the the question though is the 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 struggle is that that could go too far, and and I'm wondering, you know, theater isn't the only way that this comes up, right? Literature, right? You, you read certain literature and you identify with the characters. And part of what that can do though, is it can, it can open up a different horizon. It can open up a different perspective. It can allow you to um, appreciate the texture of human life and human loves and emotions in a way that is, uh, that pulls you outside of yourself and pulls you outside of your own context in a way that that can be helpful. He's not. He's he's not anti literature. Um, I mean, he's going right. to use all of this in order to articulate the formation of his love. And his primary critique, I think, here is not even of the stage, but of himself. I mean, Derek, to your point about our uh, our rampant addiction with Netflix and serialized TV shows, I have sometimes argued privately that. Uh, the upper middle class love of serialized TV of the uh, 
uh, AMC variety or the HBO variety is indicative of uh, a kind of loss of thick family bonds and obligations that take up enough energy and time uh, such that we don't have hours and hours to commit to Netflixing. Um, and I think there's there's something to that line of critique, uh, even within Augustine. So when he concludes this sort of uh, uh, reflection um, on page 37, the section four, um, he says, hence, hence came my love for sufferings, but not of a kind that pierced me very deeply. For my longing was not not to experience myself miseries such as I saw on stage. I wanted only to hear stories and imaginary legends of suffering, which, as it were, scratched me on the surface. Yet like the scratches of fingernails, they produced inflamed spots, pus, and repulsive sores. That was my kind of life. Surely, my God, it was no real life at all. And this sense that he's got this love of sufferings, but in a way that he's distant from, um, that he's detached from, uh, that he doesn't want the actual sufferings of uh, real friendships and um, uh, real uh, family bonds. He wants to experience them vicariously through these other people. Um, I think is grounds for a real critique of our own media consumption habits, um, uh, which allow us to participate in the struggles and the turmoils of third parties who have no immediate bearing on our own lives or our own obligations uh, and to experience all the emotions that we feel accordingly um, without having to do anything about it. I remember having an argument with uh, one relatively prominent Christian film critic about um, House of Cards. And she made an argument that I have heard many times, which is something like, well, you know, I get to see the flaws of a certain form of leadership. And I learn about that by way of watching um, Frank Underwood seize power and so on and so forth. And I get that at the same time, um, none of us are ever going to work for a Frank Underwood or be in that kind of position. And uh, the Lord in his providence is going to um, teach us through the dramas and the tragedies of those that we actually live with um, if we're actually living with them. And, and doing so exposes us to real sufferings, the kinds of, that do pierce our heart deeply uh, in a way that the, the theater allows us to deflect and avoid. Well, there's a lot in there. Um, I do think the I do think the safe. I do think there's that that I think there's a lot to the the um, the safe consumption and the safe engagement with you know range of emotions that's there. The certain voyeuristic or um, yeah, it's like it's like going on a it's like going on a roller coaster. You know, you get the thrill of of danger safely strapped in, um, to the, to the seat. And, and we kind of need that more because less and less of us are actually like out on the peaks where, you know, that where those same sorts of thrills are, are just 
a feature of, of life and reality. Um, I think there's something to that. Uh, I think that that is a significant critique for a way of, I think, especially some of the addictive watching that we do. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the section, um, starting page 44, where he talks about the different customs and rules by which people lived at different times and the Manichaean objections to this. Um, so that was actually where I wanted to go. Where does, where does evil come from? And is God confined within a corporeal form? Has he hair and nails? And can those be considered righteous who had several wives at the same time and killed people and offered animals in sacrifice? So then he goes into a discussion of, um, justice and its relationship with particular times and the moral codes that apply in the customs. I found it fascinating and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I flag that. So just for context, for those who haven't been reading so far, or he's already, he's talking about the time in his life where he fell in with the sect of, uh, known as the, the Manichees or the Manichaeans, uh, and, Part of their part of their criticism of traditional or Catholic Christianity was um, rooted in different views of the cre- creator creature distinction, good and evil, uh, and some of their uh, repugnance at and an abhorrence of Old Testament moral Old Testament narratives and scriptures. And so, you know, looking at uh, looking at the many wives of Abr- of you know the patriarchs and, and, and some of the shenanigans they got away with. Um, and, and that's what he's speaking to. And then he goes into this discussion of, you know, in a sense, ethics, does is ethics relative from time to place? And if that's the case, then is there such a thing as an absolute justice? I have a thought here, but, um, Matt, I'm going to pitch to you. you. Know, you should, you should say your thought. You've teased us. You've, <sighs> you've, uh... so, <laughs> Okay. Well, then I, I, so I was very interested in this just because it, it, it touches on Augustine is, is famous for developing along with some of the other fathers, uh, you know, a certain doctrine of accommodation whereby God, uh, God accommodates himself and his, you know, whether well, the revelation of who he is, uh, to us according to, um, our limited, our limited cognitive capacities just because of the creator creature distinction. That's part of it of like, okay, I'm going to use metaphorical language. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to speak in language you can talk about. You, you can, you can comprehend even though I infinitely transcend it. That's fine. So that's one dimension. But the other dimension is, is, um, you know, historical and moral accommodation of the various times and places where people dwell. And so he talks about the fact that the religious principles that he delivers are his and they, there's a consistency between like the old Testament and the new Testament, but they are, there's a, there's, it's not a flat consistency. It's a consistency that is, um, it's, it's relative in a sense where, um, you know, the, the rules for governing your house, there's, there's a same baseline principle of fairness and equity that a parent might institute across their household. Uh, but, that means different things for different children, so to speak, right? The five-year-old can't use the knife, whereas the 15-year-old can uh, because of the difference in 
each child. It's not because there's a difference in like the justice of the household, so to speak. And so Augustine kind of applies that sort of reasoning here uh, to to the to the moral difference between what God apparently permits in the just uh, in in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, and then what what is allowed to the just in the New Testament. And I loved the discussion. I think there's a ton of helpful stuff in there. Um, at the same time, I'm not entirely sure that Augustine's distinctions cover it, right? So I think there's a certain level of, so I'll put it this way. I, th- I think that there, in some cases, what's going on, you know, he, 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 the, the accommodation that God is engaging with, with the, with the patriarchs, um, it's not just that, okay, those things were appropriate at that time and that place, but they're not appropriate now, there does there does seem to be a place for, in a sense, progressive accommodation uh, or like patience shown, so to speak. So it's not just that like, all right, I'm going to speak to these people in their language and these people in their language. It's, it's that, okay, morally people are in a different place right here. And I, I, I'm wary of that sort of argument because it can be used very poorly and, and it, and it has been, and it, you know, people, people radicalize it to, to argue, okay, well, you know, God just wasn't allowing certain things or God didn't give such and such commands. Um, but at the same time, even somebody like Calvin would, will say like, he'll look at certain old Testament laws and he'll say, God gave them, uh, God allowed them. Um, but that was a concession to, you know, the crudeness of the times. That, that, that was, it, it's still objectively brutal, right? Like, so the old, some of the old Testament slavery laws, he'll say, I mean, it's actually very surprising to read and he'll say, this is definitely not ideal. Uh, but it was God's accommodation too. So there's, there's even a certain like patience and moral accommodation that God is engaging with. He he sees in uh, his dealings with Israel and that sense I think is not quite as developed in this discussion in Augustine. It may be elsewhere and I'd be curious, but the, um, that, that is one thing I, I don't think Augustine develops enough here. Uh, even though I think he, he's got a lot of, uh, he, I mean, on 46, he develops, he is very, he's very keen in observing, you know, the fact that some of our offenses and some of our, some of our objections are rooted in our own kind of like cultural relativity in a sense that we, we object to the customs of other times and places based on the relative customs of our time and place. And so I think he's got a good sense of that. And it's really kind of a, kind of a prescient anti, anti-cultural, um, absolutist argument, but even still, I, I do think that there's not quite enough space given to God's, I don't know, in a sense, accommodation to a different time that is less than ideal. I don't know. That was my, my lengthy ram there. Al, Alistair, Matt, any pushback there or thoughts? Um, Matt? Oh, I mean... It's such a it's such a large question. Um, 
I mean, on 45, uh, near the top of the page, he does say, does that mean that justice is liable to variation and change? No. The times which it rules over are not identical for the simple reason that they are times. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the his 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 use of I mean, this is why I say he's not opposed to things to the humanities, right? His defense of absolute norms is uh, appeals to poetry. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, poetry, the art of poet, poetic composition did not have different rules in different places, but had the same rules at all times. Um, and justice in the same way prescribes for all times in a far more an excellent and sublime way. Uh, and I, I mean, Augustine does uh elsewhere talk about i mean the specific norms of the old testament and uh the way in which the lord uses them um things like uh the um permission to have multiple wives um and paradoxically in that discussion uh he says something like well you know it's a sign of how value uh, how valuable procreation is and a sign of the chastity of the patriarchs because they're so committed to only procreation that they are able to have multiple lives wives on that basis um it, it's it's a it's a fun little argument um but he's obviously opposed to having multiple wives and um and so seeks a kind of harmonization or reconciliation of what seems like uh, an inconsistency within the, the, the moral codes of the old and new covenants. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that he's not sort of providing sufficient room for the kind of cultural accommodation that you're d arguing that we need. Um, it is, you know, it, he's, He's writing this immediately after the section where he introduces his uh, uh, embeddedness in the Manichaean community and the Manichaean way of thinking. And it seems to be a, uh, a kind of critique and an undoing of uh, a specifically Manichaean cultural relativity. Um, and so he's emphasizing or accenting the universality and the absolute character of moral norms because that's the principle that the Manichees would have rejected. Um, but, I, but I'm not sure it commits him to not affirming the kind of accommodation about the Old Testament that you're arguing that we need. But I think he lays the foundation for that sort of argument, but doesn't... Um, express it as fully as he might do. So, for instance, the idea that different people in the house are allowed to do different things, different places in the house, different things are appropriate. In the same way, as children grow up, for instance, the toddler wears a bib at the table. Um, if the 15-year-old were doing the same, there'd be something seriously wrong. Um and there's that sort of accommodation to times. Um, and so the idea of accommodation to times is 
not just times, as it were, rendered spatially and held alongside each other, but times in progression from each other, that what is appropriate in a particular time of our development isn't appropriate later. And then later on he talks about the way in which... Um, let me find the passage. Yes, where he talks about, besides vicious and injurious acts and many iniquities, there are also the sins of those who are making progress. By the criterion of perfection, good judges have to condemn them, but they are to be encouraged with praise in hope of fruit, like the blade announcing the grain harvest. And I think that's a very helpful framework for thinking about something like um, something like the practice of polygamy in the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, so the framework is there. It's just a matter of it, some, some of the context of these things were, it's not as fleshed out. And, and the, 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 there are some passages which would lend it, which would uh, lend it, um, lend it to less helpful readings. And so, but yeah, I mean, I was. I when loved, you write your theological memoirs, Derek, we expect them to be far more thorough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you asked, and this is something I've been thinking about here. So, um, this is, it was great, and I know he treats it elsewhere. So I, part of my curiosity is how, how it coheres and how he develops that. Um, so anyways, um, were there, were there any, other, any other sections that you guys, you know, it was funny to me. I guess we'll come back around to this. Um, just the way uh, Augustine's encounter with a Hortensius uh, with Cicero's work, uh, Hortensius impacted him, right? So he's he's reading, he's studying for his uh, development as a as a rhetorician and a lawyer, um, and he's excelling there. He's getting really good at using his words, and um, but then he encounters this piece of philosophy that uh, fired his imagination to seek out for wisdom. Um, and then he goes off and he he moves on to uh, the Manichaean sect because he takes offense at the Bible, thinks it's too low, it's too there's you know. And what, what was interesting was that he, he he talks about this paradox where he's in this place where he he's fired for the love of wisdom. He, he really wants to pursue it. The flip side is though, uh, at the end of it, um, when he falls in with the Manichees. Uh, he talks about this encounter he has with his mother and and her and and the, and the pastor at the time that she was she was talking to to about Augustine and um, this pastor looks at her and basically says that he won't he won't debate Augustine he won't talk to him right now because he's not in a place where he wants to learn where he's not he's not in a suitable mindset it's actually more it actually would be more harmful for me to engage with him at the time so just that, what what struck me was this paradox of at one in the same time being being in a place where he 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 attributes god's agency in in encountering this work and in firing his love of his desire for wisdom his thirst for the truth and at the same time this wise pastor acknowledging that he didn't actually want or wasn't in a place to encounter the truth. Um, so I was just wondering what you guys made with that, made of that, um, 
I mean, pastorally, do you, I mean, do you think the guy, in a sense, do you think the priest was right, or, or what, what's what's the kind of dynamic at work there? Um, I, I just I just found that just an interesting an interesting stage of of life in Augustine's description for that reason, just that tension of. I, I really did want the truth. And at the same time, I didn't want the truth. Um, caught, caught up through that. I mean, it's significant that Hortensius is not a religious work that um, he attributes to, like he, he, he attributes to this non-religious work, the beginnings of his process of return. Um, suddenly, page 39, suddenly every vain hope became empty to me and I longed for the immortality of wisdom with an incredible ardor in my heart. I began to rise up to return to you, which I think is a pretty direct allusion to um, the prodigal son. Uh, again, you know, I will arise and go to my father. Um, the uh, and that that sense of like he begins his return here. Um, he he spends nine years in the wilderness, right? Like it's he's still not close in one sense temporally to uh, being converted, and his mother's dream um, is a really significant moment. You know, his mother uh, comes to him and says, "Where where I have this dream? Where I am, you are also." Uh, and he tries to invert it, and she won't let him. She's uh, very, very deliberate about what the what the dream said, and um, and you know you do get the sense that there is a a kind of forbearance here of on God's part that's being expressed through Augustine's life, um, where the the working retrospectively of the Holy Spirit in the action of conversion took all sorts of forms that at the time it were invisible to people. Um, you know, he reads Hortensius and that begins the process of him moving out of the Manichaeans. Um, it's going to take a lot more than that to get him out, but he, he genuinely wants wisdom now in a way that, that he didn't before. Um, and it's that awakening of the desire for wisdom that moves him. So um, that, I don't know that that answers the question of the, the tension that you're picking up on Derek, but no, but uh, it, it is, it is talks a lot about his pursuit I, of his pursuit of truth and this sort of thing. Um, and the process that that leads to, but he places a lot of emphasis upon his mother's prayers. Um, yeah. How do we fit in the prayers of Monica into the picture? There's a particularly strong, I love the, the words of the, um, the bishop to Monica when she pers persists and tries to persuade him to reason with Augustine when he's given her a no for an answer. She pressed him with more begging and with floods of tears, asking him to see me and debate with me. He was now irritated and a little vexed and said, go away from me as you live. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. In her conversations <laughs> with me, she often used to recall that she had taken these words as if they had sounded from heaven. Oh man, that's um, that's 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 actually fantastic. Um, I mean, that kind of that kind of that kind of fant I mean, just that in a sense, the 
you actually hear an echo of you actually see kind of an echo of of the uh, the parable of the of the unjust judge and the and the, and yeah, the persistent exactly. widow who just you know if only just because he's tired of her he's gonna he's gonna give her justice and you've got this and but and, and that's pre, that's precisely the, the the use to which Jesus put the parable uh, is to encourage people to pray I mean if even an unjust judge gets tired you know God's good he actually wants to give out good gifts <laughs> like salvation so so persist if that's true Derek um, because I had the same thought about that illusion that that um, yeah, that illusion. If that's true, then there might be a kind of embedded critique of the bishop here, right? Uh, where hmm. uh, the bishop is too recalcitrant, um, too, like, uh, he maybe should play a more direct role in reaching out to Augustine as a result of these prayers, um, rather than only um, only announcing to Monica that her prayers will be rewarded, right? Because his, his position of judge is to, uh, w- would be to give Monica what she would want, um, which would be an interaction, you know, an exchange with Augustine. Um, I don't know that that's the case, but it's, you know, it's an interesting possibility. Yeah, I, I think, and I, I mean, you guys push back on me. I think we've all had um, we've all had conversations with our friends who are either skeptics or unbelievers or uh, believers who are just really skeptical and kind of walking down a certain path. And I do think there are some conversations where I've come away, and I, and I wonder if I would have approached them differently if I had a certain sort of confidence where I, where I realize. Um, this person right now does just doesn't want to hear it. And I'm wondering if pursuing it using in a sense, good arguments right now uh, are wasted, you know, pearls before swine and actually have the effect of inoculating them against this sort of reasoning at a different time because they, you know, in a sense they've heard they, they will have heard it, they will have heard it at a time when they're, when they're just so dead set against hearing it. Um, they'll mishear it, and they'll remember their mishearing, so to speak. And so it's almost it can also validate it can also validate people in their reactions that aren't actually um, honest intellectual questions and challenges at all. They're yeah um, based upon completely different motives and often you can read this from people and you know that their their feigned objections aren't their real objections or their real motives and dealing yeah. with those feigned objections as if they were real just discredits your position so I, you know i think there's there's a struggle there because sometimes sometimes it uh sometimes you can you know, I, I've had these conversations where I know that there is a reason, there's an objection behind those objections. And, but at the same time, you feel like there, there are times where if I, if I, if I engage with the one that you're presenting right now, I will be able to remove in a sense, your, 
I'm going to help you stop lying to yourself about why you really don't want to believe in God or why you're really struggling right now. Because right now you're lying to yourself. You, you say it's this thing, but actually, you know, you, you say it's this, you know, textual objection, but really you're mad about this tragedy that befell you or this desire that you want to pursue or whatever it is. And so there's that sense where arguing can remove that. Or And this is where I, so I think just the issue of, of wisdom and the, 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 there's no there's no formula on these on these encounters, and I so this is why it's why it, it's interesting to think about whether or not there is a you're right Matt whether there is an implicit critique, or whether it is a trust that this 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 why this this pastor was wise and knowing that he just would have been would have been rocky ground that needed that needed a few years to be broken up, to be to be in a sense plowed, uh, in order to be ready to receive what he had to offer. Um, and whether that's God's providence in, in, um, in using that, um, and that's just something that, did, I mean, past, pastoral, that, that grabbed me just thinking about ministry to, to students and, uh, people that we're walking with who, who have all sorts of objections like the ones that he had, uh, to scripture and to, uh, and to the gospel. Um, there is more we could pursue, but I think this is a time. This is a good time to uh, break it off, uh, listener. If you are listening in right now and you still haven't picked up a copy, I will just encourage you. Um, Augustine's Confessions. We're going through the translation by Henry Chad Henry Chadwick, the Oxford World Classics. You, we are only three books into a what eighteen? No, thirteen book. Thirteen book work so many weeks to come pick it up engage uh but we will be back again in about a week talking about something else Uh, until then take care and thanks for listening